So we're going to do a little bit of what I like to call Hanukkah for grown-ups. Uh, I've been doing this since uh, I was the rabbi in Duluth. And like after a while being there, I was like, people were like, okay, what are we doing for Hanukkah with the new rabbi? And then you try to fight against what the old rabbi did, and you try to fight against what their customs are. And then finally you realize, like, okay, once we've done that, like, what do grown-ups really care about Hanukkah, <laughs> right? And so often I found people had an attachment to Hanukkah or they didn't, right? They, they really had a deep attachment for some reason to Hanukkah, or once their kids were grown, adults were just kind of done, Um, Because we have two versions of the story of Hanukkah when we really talk about what Hanukkah is, and that is, of course, the victory of the Maccabees over the Seleucid Greek uh, occupying army. So we are celebrating an insurrection. Okay, so that's one that, that we've got. And the other one that we've got is when they went into the temple to to clean it up because it had been desecrated uh, and to cleanse and purify it because it had been trafed, um, then they had to deal with lighting the menorah, right? That's part of the temple ritual. Well, if you're going to light the menorah, um, you're going to need oil, and you needed pure olive oil uh, with which to light the menorah. And so uh, it takes seven days to purify oil, and they found, as the legend tells us, one cruise of pure oil to... Uh, to light the menorah. Okay. So we kind of know those two, we kind of generally know those two things. There's this victory of the Maccabees over the Seleucid, larger, bigger, tougher, scary army that was representing not allowing the Jews to practice their religious tradition, to, pr- to practice the calendar, the ways, um, the language used to praise the deity in Jewish tradition. So there's this freedom to celebrate how we want to be independent in terms of uh, religious freedom. And there's this other message of, well, they decided when they were going to dedicate the temple that they needed to have an eight-day festival. And if you're going to have an eight-day festival, then and you're going to dedicate the temple with an eight-day festival, but we have one cruise of oil to last one day, how are you going to have eight days of celebration? Like, How, how are you going to light the menorah for eight days? So there's, there's two things associated with Hanukkah for us. The victory of the Maccabees, which was miraculous by many accounts. Many of us think about the state of Israel um, coming into existence, fighting its first war for independence and not being decimated. We think of the Six-Day War. There are so many ways we think about we can resonate with the fact that some victories seem miraculous, right, and um, completely impossible, and so we want to celebrate and honor that. Um, and... And yet the rabbis were very uncomfortable with this being a military holiday. The rabbis were deeply uncomfortable lifting this up as a military victory. One of the reasons is because it was, what was it again? It was, oh, right, an insurrection. (laughs) Who were the rabbis living under at the time? Rome. Okay. You're living under Rome. Is it a really good idea? to lift up and celebrate an insurrection, an armed military rebellion where the Israelites took back control of the temple in Jerusalem and kicked out the bigger Greek army? No, that is not a good idea. So the rabbis were understandably very nervous about celebrating Hanukkah for its military victory. 
So what does that leave us? That leaves us this other kind of tangential story about when they came into the temple, when they finally took the temple back. They find one cruise of oil. They decide it has to be an eight-day festival. Where did they get that from? Oh, yeah. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, what did he do? If you have a question, you look at Torah. Right? If you're a Jew with a question, we got to start with Torah. So how do you dedicate a temple? Well, you look at what Solomon did when he dedicated the, what's a seven-day? Okay, okay, great. So we're going to do the whole week-long thing, but we have one cruise of oil. And miraculously, it lasted eight days. So those are the two ways we anchor ourselves in um, this understanding of Hanukkah. All of that, however, has nothing to do with any kind of commandment from Torah to observe any kind of holiday because it's past when the Torah right, is canonized. Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha. It's part of after the Torah has been canonized. So it's like you can do what you want and wave a bunch of flags and whatever, but it is an act of absolute chutzpah to say, Asher Kiddushanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu, who made us holy with your commandments and commanded us regarding anything to do with Hanukkah, right? Like, how can you do that? How can you take Israel Independence Day and say, Asher Kiddushanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu to celebrate Israel Independence Day? It's not there, right? It's, it's not a Shiarkidishanu. How can you do that? This is, for me, one of the deepest meanings of Hanukkah as a grown up, as an adult, about what we really celebrate at this time. We celebrate saying we're going to take our reality and we are going to plunk it right back into a Shiarkidishanu, Bemitzvotavetzivanu. We are going to call what's happening to us right here um, sacred obligation. And we're going to make up blessings for that. And we stand on very, very strong rabbinic shoulders. When we do that, the evidence is Hanukkah. Right. So we're going to look at a few of the, um, the origin texts, because if it's not in Torah, how do we know how you light the menorah? How do we know what you say? How do we know what you do? What are the rules? And rules, I know, are not very exciting for us as Americans. It's like, pff, rules, like that's what we're going to look at. But it's very Jewish because what the rules get decided to be is a direct expression of what the values are around why do this at all, right? If you're going to have a 4th of July parade, well, here in the Palisades, you had better not have fill in the blank. That is an expression of our values. You do it this way. You don't invite hate groups. You don't use this. Wait, there's, there's ways we say the rules around how we're going to celebrate this are indicative of why bother and what's most important about this for us. So we're going to look at some of those texts. So Rebecca, if you would bring up our source sheet, as you know, one of my favorite sandboxes to play in is Safaria. So I've made a Safaria sheet for us. Um, and you'll see that the, 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 so where is this all decided, right? That's a question I just posed. Where is this all decided? How you celebrate Hanukkah, what you do, who does it, where it's done, for how long? Where is all that decided? It's all discussed in the Talmud. Hanukkah derives from the Talmud. So remember, what is Talmud? Talmud is Mishnah, the law codified in 200 of the common era. So 200 CE, the law is codified in the Mishnah. 
But then you have hundreds of years of the rabbi saying, wait a minute, if that's true, or if you don't have enough money for Shabbos candles and Hanukkah candles, which one's more important? You have hundreds of years of discussion. That discussion is called Gemara. Mishnah plus Gemara is the Talmud. So we get the law and then the discussion of the law. And why is that important? Why not just study the Mishnah? Because how do we know what's the law now? Whatever the majority decided as a result of all those arguments. It's in the Gemara. So Talmud tells us the Mishnah, but then there was a lot of arguing about the Mishnah. And then so it's what did the majority decide is happening after, uh, right? After hundreds of years, literally. The Talmud is codified in four and six hundred. So hundreds of years later. Okay. So let's look at the Talmud. Where do we get the laws of Hanukkah discussed? What we're supposed to do in this business of Hanukkah? We get it in what tractate? Tractate Shabbat. You got to love that. There is no tractate Hanukkah, (laughs) right? We get it in tractate Shabbat. They're talking about sacred time and what are the observances around sacred time. And then it's like, oh, and if we're talking about Shabbos, wicks and flames well that reminds us of this whole other thing that we have started to do called this hanukkah business all right so i'm going in the actual order which you might find interesting i wanted part of me wanted to rearrange the order but i'm going in the or the order of how this appears in the talmud the third set of questions we're going to look at that comes from this tractate shabbat is my hanukkah what's this hanukkah business notice that's not the first question the first issue in Shabbat 21B, uh, 21 21B is not my Hanukkah. What's with this Hanukkah business? Nope, it's something else. All right, well, what is it? Tanu Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. Mitzvat Hanukkah, what is the mitzvah of Hanukkah? What's the commandment of Hanukkah? Ner ish uveto. What is the direct commandment? The sages taught in a baraita, the basic mitzvah of Hanukkah, is each day to have a light kindled by a person, the head of the household for himself and his household. Have you got the right sheet, Miriam? Are you okay? Okay. Joyce is saying she can't hear. I'm sure Rebecca and Adam will get on that. All right. So what's the mitzvah of Hanukkah? This is what, this is what we get from the Talmud. What's the mitzvah of Hanukkah? One candle. For one person in the household. Are you all with me? Text number one. All right. So that's it. That's the mitzvah of Hanukkah. One can, one wick for one person in the household. At least the head of household has to, right, be responsible for making one wick happen. Okay. One wick for each day, people. One candle each day. One flame the first day. One flame the second day. Not cumulative. One candle. We call it candle. They would call it a wick because their wick was in oil. Right? Okay. So the head of household, the mehadrin, those who really want to beautify. Right? I don't love this meticulous business, but it's one who really wants to mamash do the mitzvah. What do they do? They kindle a light for each and every one in the household. So everyone gets their own little wick. (laughs) right, to light in the house. And the mehadrin minhamidrin, the ones who are really mamash about beautifying the mitzvah, who are even more meticulous, adjust the number of lights daily. 
okay. This is the first that we know, most of us living now, lighting a Hanukkah. This is the first we've ever heard of this. But the original discussion of Hanukkah was one candle in your house per night. Shabbos has more than that for most of us, right? So one candle, at least for the head of household, every single night until it's over, okay? For eight days, you light a candle. Mama, oh, lovely. All right. But those who really want to beautify the mitzvah, everyone in the house gets a candle every night. One candle every night of Hanukkah, and then you're done. And the ones who really want to beautify the mitzvah, what do they do? They adjust the number of lights daily. So they adjust the number of lights according to the day of Hanukkah that it is. Well, what does that mean? We have a machloket. We have an argument about what that means because we're Jews. So you'll see on your text sheet, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagree as to the nature of that adjustment. Of course they do. Beit Shammai say, on the first day, one kindles eight lights and from there on gradually decreases the number of lights until on the last day of Hanukkah, the person kindles one light. And Beit Hillel says, on the first day, one kindles one light from there on, gradually increases the number of lights until on the last day, one has kindled eight lights. All right. So somewhere along the way, it seems like people kind of accepted this idea of not just one wick every night for eight nights, but, but to adjust the number depending on the day. So it seems like that became kind of the majority practice to do. Okay. Well, which do you do? If you really think about one cruise of oil and you think about eight days, then that cruise of oil is going to get what? Less and less and less as each day goes on. So really, Beit Shammai makes sense, doesn't it? Shammai says, that's what happened. Right? That's what happens whenever we light something. Fuel gets less every day it's burned. So let's celebrate that there was this flaming eight-day, you know, cell end, you know, uh, thing going on, and each day it diminished, but it made it. It diminished each day, but by the for, by the last day there was still one candle. There was still enough to light. Okay. However, Beit Hillel says you kindle one candle and then you keep adding until you get to eight. So then it doesn't just stop there. It's like, well, what's Hillel's reasoning? Any ideas? Shammai's reasoning is perfectly clear to me. I don't know about y'all. What the heck is Hillel's argument? So one, one argument that the, the school of Hillel brings later uh, in this tractate is, or the people who like Hillel's idea, because everyone ha has to guess now, because it's not written here what Hillel's reason is, so they have to guess, but they kind of were attached to it. They had an opinion about this. Imagine Jews having some opinions about how they like to do it. Um, so they said, well, because Hillel knew that we only increase in acts of holiness, we never decrease, God forbid. So you would never light eight lights to celebrate and then go down from there and diminish from there. Chas v'shalom. 
Chas v'chalila, God forbid, we should start and then go down. No, you start with one candle and you light so that we only go up. Ma'alin, uh, but we only go up in in acts of hope. Okay. What do we feel about this? A lot of us can feel like, you know, Shammai's on the right track. <laughs> like, that's just people how it is. And it lasted for eight days. That's pretty miraculous. It got less and less and less, but it lasted for eight days. So that sounds pretty reasonable to me. But of course, Jews get, we've gotten very attached to this idea of one candle growing into eight. So let's look at some modern uh, commentary on that idea. Rabbi Menachem Creditor, in his uh, new book, A Year of Torah, says, the Talmud says the basic obligation is one candle per household of each night, and then it says that there are mehadrin, people who want the mitzvah to be more beautiful. They light one candle the first night, two the second night, three the third night, etc., and then there are mahadrin min mehadrin. People who fabulously, who are fabulously beautiful mitzvah keepers. They light one candle per person each night, increasing the light so that the eighth night is grand and spectacular. So whoever just said in the chat, yes, that Hillel understood optics. Uh, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right, says Harvey. That's exactly right. How wonderful to know that we are not satisfied to simply fulfill an obligation. We are committed not only to answering an immediate need, but also to beautifying this world. We are called to add everything that we can to enhance the splendor and beauty of Hanukkah. So what I love about Rabbi Creditor's comment is, right, yeah, we, we could do the least necessary. Sure, we could do that. Just fulfill the obligation, just fulfill what you have to do. Is that really... Though the spirit we want to be living into, he suggests, is let's always look for ways to beautify the mitzvah. You know, let's always look for ways to make it, um, to make it more and to increase the splendor and beauty both of Hanukkah and of the light uh, of the menorah. And Rabbi Michael Strassfeld says something similar from uh, the Jewish holidays. Text number three, chat box. I would suggest that Shammai is following his general overriding principle to tell the truth. I love this about Rabbi Strassfeld. He points out that the school of Shammai is all about let's tell the truth and let's be honest and let's work from honesty. Let's go from there. That's his theory about Bet Hillel in general. When I'm mean, uh, sorry, Bet Shammai in general, who people tend to call the stricter ruling. Strassfeld wants to, to soften the, the idea that, that, that the school of Shammai is only coming from being strict, from being machmir. He says, yes, it, it, it turns out that their rulings are more machmir, more strict. But, it be, but he says it's because of the basic value of the school of Shammai of saying, let's just be honest about this, people. So how does that relate to this argument? The truth is that we live in a world of ever-diminishing expectations. The moment we are born, we begin to die. Each day brings us one day closer to our last day. For Shammai, truth is the ultimate value. Similarly, for Hillel, there is a deeper sense of truth here. The deeper truth is that our lives become ever richer and fuller with the passage of time not increasingly diminished. The light of Hanukkah reminds us of the potential that lies within each moment, the present can be filled with light 
And that light can increase no matter where we are in the span of our lives. Like life, light can pierce any darkness. We're really, for me, a really powerful teaching about, yeah, it's true. We, we, things diminish. Entropy is the rule, right? Things, till something else works on them to, you know, to put them together, things just naturally fall apart. They diminish. That is very true. But there's another kind of truth. There's another level of truth, says Hillel. And that level of truth says we become richer even as we are diminished in other capacities. So yes, we become more frail. Yes, we become more challenged by things that used to come easily to us physically and with energy and with lots of other things. But as I was just talking to Reverend Bruce Freeman um, over a wonderful lunch uh, last week, and you know, he said, no wise person has ever, ever wanted to be younger. Like, would we like the things that came with youth that we miss? Of course. We're not stupid, <laughs> but would any of us choose to actually go back and be that younger self? Not one of us that have any appreciation for right, for life and what we've learned. And I'm cl- I'm glad that we can count ourselves among them. Those nodding in the room, because um, surely a lot of people have suffered. And like I, you know, I I, I want to say like to be clear, I feel privileged to be able to talk about aging being actually an enriching process because I live in a place where I don't have to worry about right making it from day to day or being left on the side of the road. Um, so, so that there's a deeper truth that we also increase so much about who we are only as we age and only as other things are diminished. And some folks want to argue it's even because certain things are diminished that we spend more time on the life of the heart and the life of the mind and the life of, dare we say it in a synagogue, the soul. That if we're so busy running around and riding our bikes and lifting weights and doing what, you know, like then, right, that sometimes it's, it's not only despite, but because of some of those changes that we start to focus on another level of reality and our own development as human beings that, that, that Strassfeld talks about being incredibly rich and is the opposite of diminishment. And that the present has the potential to be filled with all kinds of light. uh, And that kind of light can pierce darkness. All right, I'll stop after we get to the end of this next text and see if there's any comments. Rabbi Miriam Wiesel says, Beit Hillel's approach is the reverse. We know that of, of Shammai's. Each day is a recognition of what has occurred. A day of achievement. Another day of accomplishment. Or was it another day of frustration, another day of sameness? Whatever we put into it, it is now done, and we can only look back on it. So why was the position of Beit Hillel adopted? Right? So we can see there are two arguments, but why did we, why did we go with Hillel? She says, why do we prefer looking at the reality rather than the potential? Possibly it is because of a second explanation the Talmud gives for Beit Hillel's reasoning, We increase in matters of sanctity, but we do not reduce. Ma'alin b'kodesh, ve'ein moridin. We go up, we don't go down in matters of holiness. We acknowledge the reality, the actuality, the accomplished, the done. We look at this day and understand that it has the possibility to be imbued with kedusha, with holiness. As Rabbi Harold Schulweis has said, kedusha 
is experienced through realizing the holy, the Kodesh, locked in the potential, in the Chol. Inside the potential of each day lies the possibility of bringing Kedusha into it. That is what we do. By increasing the lights, we increase the holiness that lies waiting each day, in each event, in each moment, in the potential of the whole, in, in the potential of the non-holy, the regular, uh, if you. So, you know, what, what she's saying is that, you know, the, the, the school of Hillel argues it actually was one day, and then it actually was two days, and then it actually was three days. Like he's, he's living into the actuality of the fact that we did a day, <laughs> and then we did another day, and then after that, we did the third day and the fourth day, and that each of those is to be appreciated. Not to say, okay, the whole miracle business was eight, but then it, you know, then the, the oil decreased, the fuel decreased. No, it burned a day. And then it burned another day. And then we're given another day. And that's kind of the point. And that's what Jews got attached to. Uh, Rabbi Miriam Wiesel's arguing, we got attached and like this idea and resonate with this idea that whatever the original eight was, we still did today. <laughs> and we did break the day after. And, the, and we'll do the day after. And we have to figure out how to do the next day after that because some weeks it feels really hard to imagine doing six more of these before it's Tuesday again. <laughs> right. All right. I want to stop because so, so we've learned. So these are a couple of the kind of themes that I love about Hanukkah, this kind of argument about what actually happened. Is it diminished? Is it just one at a time? And we just need to take some rest and some pleasure and some appreciation of that. So these these are some of the concepts I love um, about talking about Hanukkah. And I love that our tradition argued about them from the beginning, that there wasn't an agreement on how to light the menorah from the beginning, that there was real thought about what does this business actually represent for us? The growing of light, right? Or its diminishment. And that, that is a very real arguing about which one we're going to do was actually expressive of some deep philosophy around how we approach life and how we hold um, what's happening, right, um, on any given day, in any situation. Um, and we've certainly come through the last Hanukkah <laughs> with right, a, you know, a different appreciation for how to do situations that feel like kind of crazy. All right, anybody want to say anything on Zoom? You can unmute if you want to unshare, Rebecca. If anyone wants to say anything, you can unmute and speak. Hold on, let me make it available for them to unmute. <laughs> oh, yeah, promises. We should probably try to keep. Um, okay, we're good. Seriously? So I speak. The Jews have nothing to say? Yeah, I, I have something to say. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> she always okay, has Sarah something. Moskowitz, please. What I want to say is how wonderful that you have created this special, wonderful celebration for us who cannot come to the temple. What a beautiful, terrific uh creative thing you are doing under difficult circumstances and we appreciate it a hundred percent and wish such good life 
and blessings to you and everybody celebrating Hanukkah and all the good people. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It is good, yes, that we are able now to be together with folks who can't get here or don't feel safe being here. It is a really important thing, and thank you for acknowledging that. Barbara Stefan asked, do all Jews go from uh, one to eight all over the world? That is my understanding. If someone knows something different, let me know. Um, but Beit Hillel won, as Beit Hillel usually does in the Talmud. The majority went with Beit Hillel. The majority went with starting with one and going to eight. Therefore, it became halacha. It became Jewish law. And I don't know of any place within a discussion of Jewish law where there was an argument to go from eight down to one. So again, if somebody knows something that I don't, please. All right. So something to think on as you light, as we light the first little tiny candle tonight, wouldn't it be lovely if we were lighting eight? But by night six, how would we feel? So just something to think about as we go through the Hanukkah, uh, lighting the Hanukkah this year. All right. So text number five. Okay, again, this is the order that the discussion of Hanukkah happens in the Talmud. It started with how do, how do we light the menorah, people? What are we going to actually do? It's so Jewish, right? <laughs> like, what, what do we actually do? What's the right way to do it? Okay, so then they have a conversation. The sages taught in a baraita, so we got the how. Now they're going to talk about the where. The sages taught in a baraita. It is a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp at the entrance to one's house. Ready for this? on the outside, okay? We've all grown up, well, a lot of us have grown up hearing it's, it's important to, to publicize the miracle, so you put it in the window, okay? The original conversation, the original law of the Talmud, the mitzvah, and it goes on for quite some time. I didn't give you all of it because I will tell you about it. The mitzvah is that you place the Hanukkah lamp at the entrance of your house so all can see what happens if you live upstairs, You place it in the window adjacent to the public domain and in a time of danger, meaning from non-Jews, of course, because they're going to see a big Hanukkah flaming outside your door. It's like putting a target on your home. Then you place it on the table, and that is sufficient to fulfill the obligation. All right, what I want to say about this is what we don't realize when we ask the question, why is it a big deal that it's outside? It's because we forget when we light this big old honkin' thing over here, it's very clear what we're doing. It's very clear it's Hanukkah. So if that's in our living room window, it's pretty clear what's going on. This used to be just how you lit your home. Remember, they're wicks in oil. So if you're walking around with a lamp with wicks and oil, it could look like you're taking the reading lamp into the dining room, right? to start your knitting project. It's not clear that it's Hanukkah that you're celebrating. Anytime you light it in your home and have it in your home, it could look like you just turned on a lamp. We don't have that problem. So we're like, what is the big deal? The big deal for the rabbis was that you were telling people you were observing the mitzvah of Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah, I'm not just knitting. It's Hanukkah. I'm not just reading before I go to bed. This is all about people. This lamp is all about Hanukkah. What's the only way you can prove that? Is if it's outside. So so it's very clear it's not in your house. It's like Christmas lights. 
It's very clear they're there for decoration to celebrate the wonderful miracle of the birth of Christ. Because otherwise the lights would be inside the house. All right, so it's very clear they are beautifying, they are publicizing the miracle. The rabbis took that very seriously, that you put it outside to say, we in this house are celebrating Hanukkah. All right, so it has to be outside. Uh, It goes on to talk about the mezuzahs on the right. You put the menorah on the left, so you are surrounded by miracle, you are surrounded by mitzvah, you are surrounded by Jewish practice as you come in and as you go out. They probably didn't come in and go out that much at night, but you know what I'm saying. If you had to go feed the sheep or whatever, as you walked out and as you walked in, you were surrounded on either side with the awareness of of the experiences of our people and their relationship to the divine and their and our relationship to our understanding of spirit working throughout history and in every day, that miracles are possible. We could talk for hours about what that means. You can imagine what Kaplan did with that, who does not have a supernatural God. You can imagine what Kaplan had to say about miracles. Maybe we'll do that next year. Um, okay, let's look at number six. Text number six is, this is adapted from the writings of Rabbi Eli Melech of Lizensk. He says, there are two kinds of righteous people. One who is truly righteous and one who just dresses like a righteous person in a fur coat. Each of them faces the winter in a different way. One will go out and collect wood for the fire. The other will wrap himself in his fur coat. The one who collects wood lights a fire and invites others to join him. He not only warms himself, but others as well. The one who makes herself cozy in her own heavy coat is secure, but those who are around her will freeze. The genuinely righteous person is the one who shares her warmth with others a beautiful interpretation of a Hasidic master um, about why, why put it outside, why is that so important. Because for the rabbis, they understood every act publicly of affirming belief and trust in what seems impossible right now. Every act of doing that keeps other people from freezing. If you just light it inside your house, okay, yes, you and your home are inspired by that. You and your children, you and your grandchildren, you and your, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles. That's how it used to be, right, in traditional arrangements of living. If you just light it in your home, says uh, Elimelech of Lezhensk, then you're warming your own home with inspiration and trust and hope and faith and all of those things, but everyone else will freeze. We need to share it. We need to give of the light that we're creating around this mitzvah of lighting the the Hanukkiah. We need to share that with so many people who are desperate. And I would add to this kavanah that there are people we don't know are freezing. And it's none of our business. We know people are freezing. We know people are hopeless. We know people are depressed. We know people are anxious. We know people are lonely. If we put it outside, if we share it, it's none of our business who sees that and gains some modicum of comfort, some modicum of connection. Oh yeah, there were others who suffered and they came out of it. Oh yeah, there's a whole people who have suffered and are still here. Because that's the other part of putting the menorah outside the door. We are still here. 
And it makes no sense that we are still here. None. If you look at the facts of history, if you listen to my talk at the High Holidays, it makes no sense that the Jewish people survived as a people. None. The temptations to assimilation have always been there. Murder has always been there. In this country, going over, opting out, has never been easier or more rewarding. Um, and we're still here. That miracle grows for me every year that we're still here. That one does grow. Because like, yeah, it was miraculous then and miraculous then and miraculous then. But the fact that we're still here in 2021 and still lighting this thing and still daring to hope when it's so friggin' bleak sometimes. I mean, I mean, some people might say that it's so bleak that that in itself is the nace. That in itself is the miracle. Remind me, Dana, to come back to that point, will you? That that in itself is the miracle. What is the actual miracle of Hanukkah? Remind me. I don't think I put it in here. Um, okay. Number seven. Again, because I just got this book, A Year of Torah, so I was all excited to read about Hanukkah from Rabbi Menachem Creditor, who I love. Jewish tradition guides us to bringing more light, more and more, to place it in the window, because the light is not only for us, but for others as well. We have love and light to share with a world in deep need of illumination. More and more, we see how interconnected we can and therefore must be so that society and the world around us can emerge from challenge to a little more air, a little more light. He just published this book, meaning it was written during COVID. It was written during quarantine. So I, th I feel like all the words from his book right now are, right, are very clear about what it means to be challenged deeply by the situation as we have it the situation as it is, uh, and that, that, that putting the menorah out there me, is, is for us the practice with behind, the value behind it is that we need to share it with those around us uh, and that we need to witness to the world. We need to witness to the world around us that it can emerge from challenge to a little more air, a little more light. Miriam. Solidarity. So Miriam's asking, what do I think about people, um, non-Jews, putting the menorah in their window uh, as, an act, as an act of solidarity? I think it was one of the most moving things I've ever heard of, that at a time of danger to Jews, non-Jews said, oh yeah, if you're coming for them, we learned our lesson. If you're coming from them, you got to come for me too. Um, as an act of solidarity I, in a time of danger and in a neighborhood of danger for Jews, I think it's really amazing and moving and beautiful. After that, I get a little nervous about um, not like not taking a menorah and pasting it on your living room window. Not that, because that, that's clearly saying we're not practicing Hanukkah. We're standing with the Jews. Past that, like lighting one, like that starts to feel like appropriation. And so for me, it's always about, it's a fine line. And, and I always want to be very careful and graceful and gentle around how I I explore that fine line, like when I have to talk to my pastor friends about it's really not cool to do a Seder at all. Please stop. It's not your holiday. The lamb, the blood of the lamb is not the blood of Jesus. You want to do that, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But, but don't do it as a Passover Seder. 
<laughs> right? So, but it was a very hard discussion to have with someone I really admired and respected and trusted. But it's appropriation. The same way I wouldn't smudge my house with sage because it's not my tradition. Do you know what I mean? And it would be complete, I would have completely appropriated it from the Indian people in northern Minnesota. It's beautiful. I would love that. I don't do it because I feel like I'm appropriating their sacred rituals in in a way that, I don't know, it's just something I want to do because it's functional somehow. Like it's going to cleanse my, you know, and it's just not. So for me, I think appropriation is a really tricky business and it's a tricky thing. But but to to stand in solidarity at a time of danger where Hanukkah could get people in trouble, I think is one of the most brave and, and amazing acts, you know, that a community has done. If you don't know what we're talking about, you can look it up that a whole town uh, stood with the Jews by putting uh, menorot in their windows uh, because people were uh, attacking homes that had uh, a menorah going in them. All right. Any, anything else from the peanut gallery out there in Zoomland? All right. So now, after all the things we've talked about, now comes a rabbinic question in the Talmud. My Hanukkah. <laughs> What's Hanukkah? So yeah, this idea helps me reframe, says our president, Lori Kraus, the Chabad practice of having a large public menorah. That's right. That's right. Um, because otherwise, and in Duluth, they had a, a menorah mobile. So it was this horrible, horrible, you know, like van with a huge menorah on it. And they drive around with a bullhorn and Neska doha ya. And it's like, really, really, really. So yes, it's, because we don't, uh, Lori, I'm not talking for you, um, but it helped it helped me too to remind myself because I don't like it. Like I just don't like it. It's embarrassing. I just it's like it's not their holiday. It's our holiday. Why do you need to do that? The Christians do that with Christmas all the time. I hate that. Why do I have to see Christmas stuff all the time in stores that are usually just where I buy chicken? And you know, like why does Ralph's have to become a Christmas? Village. Well, I, I, I don't like it. And so, um, so I don't love it when I see the Jews do it, which is why it's important to go back to these texts and, and try to at least reclaim an understanding of why it was important for them to publicize the miracle. Dana's asking, what is Chabad putting the menorah outside for? Okay, so, so kind of that's the key. So Dana's saying it makes no sense. Who are we putting the, the, the menorah outside for if it's not their holiday? So this is the ways, it, it, this is my opinion. I think this is one of the ways we've been impacted by living under an imperial religion, right? An imperial religion says my religion's not just true for me, it's true for you too. You just don't know it. You're just wrong or stupid, or ignorant, or haven't been exposed to the word, or to Christ. Therefore, if it's theirs, and they're imperial saying, I'm wrong by not doing that, then why would, why does that need to be in my face? Why would I want to put mine in their face? Right. But I, for me, it's about growing up with a tradition that's imperial. If you're just a Jew who says, this is what we do, we experience something really amazing and fantastic and wonderful. And we believe because of that, that there's hope now too. So we're just going to put it out there to share that light with y'all, not to convert you because you know, that's not what we do. So it's not to convert you. It's to say, here's our time. Here's our tradition. We'd like to share that with you. The same way, I don't know, Buddhists might, you know, do something at, at their time of year to say, we wish the world peace and compassion, right, and whatever coming out of our sacred time of X. 
or Muslims at Ramadan, right? So does that make sense? Like, it, I, I, I think it's just, I think part of it is us going, we're so used to, that means we're trying to, you know, like publicize the miracle so that, but the so that is this, is it to share the light, to share. And look, I wish I could access that more about Christmas. I do. Because I think the Christians were actually are actually doing the same thing, right? They're saying birth the birth of possibility came into the world. It was miraculous. And the light of that, we want to share it with you. So convert. <laughs> right? And so, right? So, I mean, but but if you stop short of, therefore, you should come over to our side. If you stop short of that, what's wrong with people going, when you have balloons that say it's a boy, it's a girl. You're not saying you should have a girl, You're, right? You're saying our home has, has experienced the birth of, of a new life. Yeah, celebrate with us. You know, here's love and renewal and rebirth. And isn't that wonderful? And we all go, oh, that's so sweet, right? You know, and so that's more Hanukkah, right? And to Lori Krause's comment, yeah, Chabad's only trying to convert Jews <laughs> through the... For, right? That's fair. I mean, they have every right to go after Jews. That's my job too. Actually, we have the same job that way, to convert Jews to Judaism. That's our job. Um, okay. It's my Hanukkah. Finally, they get to the question. So we've done how, where. For the rabbis, the why is third. <laughs> like, what is the whole Hanukkah business? The Gemara asks, not even the Mishnah, the Gemara asks, what is Hanukkah and why are lights kindled on Hanukkah? The Gemara answers, the sages taught and Megillat Ta'anit on the 25th of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them and one may not fast on them. What is the reason? When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary and they're going to, this is all the non-bold is the text between the Hebrew, right? So our commentator is translating for us what they're talking about by touching them, meaning the oil was defiled by the fact that the Greeks touched it. Because remember, only priests could handle it. And when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was placed with the seal of the high priest, undisturbed by the Greeks. And there was sufficient oil there to light the candelabrum, the menorah, for only one day. A miracle occurred, and they lit the candelabrum from it eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays. With recitation of Hallel, that's how you know it's a holiday, is that you add Hallel to your morning davening, and special thanksgiving in prayer and blessings. All right, so we have the rabbi saying, my Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? Okay, yeah, there was a battle. Okay, yeah, yeah, and we won. Okay, shh, shh. What, well, the big news is that when they came into the temple to rededicate, they want nothing to do with the military story or the military victory or independence and freedom and the right to control our own destiny as a Jewish people. They live under Rome. They, they've been suffered. They've just, yeah. They, they, my Hanukkah, they went into the temple, the people who happened to be victorious over a really huge army, and 
there was only one cruise of oil. So they tell this whole story about they have to light the menorah. They're going to do an eight-day festival. And it lasts all eight days. That is what Hanukkah is about. This is really important for the rabbis that this is why we light candles. This is why we do what we do. This is why we do it on the 25th of Kislev because they came into the temple then. So Rabbi Michael Strasfeld has a really good question. A favorite rabbinic question, in fact. Concerning Hanukkah, text number nine is, what is the miracle of the first day since there was enough oil to burn for that day? That is a really good rabbinic question. How, why do we light candles for eight days? The miracle wasn't eight days. The miracle was seven days. We are told there was enough oil for one day. So that's not a miracle. <coughs> so if we're really celebrating my Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah about? And Hanukkah is about a cruise of oil lasted for eight days. The miracle only happened for seven. Okay. It's just so Jewish. I just love, I just love how Jews think. Most people wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> like it lasted for eight days, right? But Jews are like, but that's not a miracle. So how can you light a candle saying, and you're saying the whole point is that it lasted for eight days. That's the whole reason we like this thing. And, but it only lasted seven, the miracle. What is the, what is, so what is the miracle? One popular response is that the miracle on the first day was the victory of the dedication of the temple. All right. So that they could dedicate it at all was a miracle. So we count day one because that they got in there, that they had the power to get in there. They beat up the other army. They got in. They won with zero chance of that happening. They won. They had the opportunity to even come in there and dedicate the temple at all. That's a miracle. So you light for that, and then seven days that it lasted past where it was supposed to. Another is that miraculously, no oil was consumed even by the first morning. So remember, the menorah stayed lit all night. So they lit the menorah, and the miracle was when they came back in the morning, no oil had been consumed. So the miracle actually happened during the first night when no oil was consumed. Because you would need the same amount of oil for the next day, and the next day, and the next day, if it's going to last eight days, right? To my mind, the answer that comes closest to the meaning of Hanukkah is that the miracle of the first day was the deep faith that it took to light the menorah, knowing there was not enough oil for eight days. That same faith led the Maccabees to revolt against impossible odds, to strike like hammers and scatter sparks of revolt in the hills of Judea, They believed they would prevail not by strength nor by power, but through my spirit, says Adonai in Zechariah. This faith allowed them to light the menorah, and it is this faith that made it burn for eight days. It is the miracle of faith despite darkness and of belief in the growth of light in the depths of winter. That is the miracle, that they lit it at all. It's the real miracle. Because some days, doesn't it feel like, why? They knew it wasn't going to last. They had one cruise of oil. They know how long one cruise of oil lasts to light the huge menorah. There was enough for one day. Why bother? <laughs> right? Like, and what Michael Strasfeld is talking about here is it was the same, this is why bother, that had them start the whole revolt in the first place. 
Because if you don't start the revolt, you don't get to the place where you can light the menorah and rededicate the temple. But how do you inspire the folks sitting in Judea? That, oh, that Seleucid Greek army? We can take that on. We can do that. We can take back direction for our people. We can take back the ability to choose the direction we go based on our values, our understanding, our ethics, our history, our story. We can take that back. We can take the power to define our future back. If that doesn't resonate right now, (laughs) I'm not real sure what will. Because for me, frankly, there are lots of days. There are lots of days. It feels like it's... It would be miraculous to have the energy to say, I really am going to act as if I believe we can do that. We can do that. You you talk about the G8 summit, you talk about climate change, you talk about what they talked about and then didn't talk about, you talk about what they said but didn't actually agree to do, and you think, really? Why bother? For me, the the nace, the miracle of Hanukkah is is that they found a way to bother. That's what Strasfeld's saying here, I think, that... That's the nace. That's the miracle. Not what happened. That they did it. That they challenged it. That they believed they might could. That they acted anyway. With no, with no evidence that it was going to be at all possible to be victorious, whatever that means. You know, to, to, ha- to have what you want to have happen fulfilled at the end of that. They had no evidence for that. They acted anyway. That was the nace. That was a miracle, and that's why we light day one. Because, yeah, the oil miracle may have only been the other seven, but the miracle that we're here at all, the miracle that they did what they did in a time of hopelessness and despair, that's the nace. I love this piece by Rabbi Shefa Gold. The story of Hanukkah reminds us, sorry, uh, Rebecca, text number 10. The story of Hanukkah reminds us that even the holiest place within us can become desecrated. We must enter the darkness of our own wounded hearts, survey the damage, clear away the rubble, and then light a candle to rededicate ourselves to holiness, to our own wholeness and connection to the cosmos. It is truly miraculous that a single spark of hope can ignite the radiant fires of passion that illuminate our way forward, even on the darkest night. As the days grow short and the darkness long, we are invited to enter into the darkness of our own hearts. There, buried beneath the rubble of our disappointments, we find the miraculous spark of our divinity, the awesome knowledge that we are each created in the image of God. This is the spark that kindles our festival of lights. Each night of Hanukkah, we light another candle, Each night, the light grows brighter, shining its radiance into our own hidden places. The great miracle of healing is happening right here within us when we call light into our own places of darkness, when we bring the healing light of compassion into hidden crevices of shame or fear. As we light the flames of Hanukkah, May we kindle the flame within that will shine the light of awareness across the true expanse of soul. I mean, it just kind of doesn't get more grown up than that in terms of the real meaning of Hanukkah, right? Clearing away rubble. And of course, it means that on the grand scale of the world, of society, of 
climate change, of so many things that we're looking at at pandemics and um, equity around access to healthcare and information and disinformation. What I love about Rabbi Gold is that she's always ready to take that very seriously and then to say, okay, Amy, it's also about the rubble, about the wreckage, about the breakage, about the disappointments, about the pain and the shame and the fear and the ways we don't measure up, the ways we let old tapes uh, inform who we think we are and ought to be and allowing ourselves uh, after doing heavy lifting to rededicate ourselves to rededicating the inner sanctum, the inner holy space within each of us because we are a mikdash me'at. She teaches this. This is a, an excerpt from a bigger piece, which I really encourage you to read and share with others, the inner practice of Hanukkah. It's just a, you know, it's just a page. Um, but she talks about we're each a mikdash me'at. We left the model of a temple. So Hanukkah, yeah, is about rededicating the temple, but we left that model. Now we're each a mikdash me'at. We are each a small sanctuary. And now prayer replaces sacrifice, right? The altar's here. The fire of the altar has to be tended here. So to purify the temple for Rabbi Gold means we have to go within, clear away the rubble, and then be willing after that to light a flame saying we rededicate ourselves to the trust that light can shine into the dark places of fear and shame and hurt and that that will bring the ability for the inner sanctum um, to inform our lives again and right to cast light outward uh, into the rest of how we behave in the world, what our relationships look like and what our own commitment to growth uh, looks like, our courage to face what, um, what we can do and need to do interpersonally with ourselves, with our kids, with our world, with our pets, you know, my dog is going to drive me bananas. She's 14 and has a neck injury and now it means meds twice a day and it's meant carrying her up the stairs and she hates to be picked up. So we have to put her in her bed and then trick her into carrying her up. But, right? Like It truly some days takes courage and strength and commitment and dedication just to get through Thursday. Right. And I think Rabbi Gold for me is so important about helping us um, remember it's not just writ large that it's, that it's, it starts here. The courage to rebel against the Seleucids, the, the courage to, you know, to, to light that cruise, that menorah with one cruise of oil. It, it starts with each one of us figuring out how to do the repair work that it takes um, for us to be hopeful at all. And I'm not talking big hopeful. Y'all know me. I'm not an optimist. To, to have enough trust, strength, focus that we start it knowing it's not on us to finish the work. The loata, right? You're not also allowed to, to not start it. Lahitpater, right? To begin it. So, um, for also the words of Hillel. Um, but, um, so for me, that's a really important teaching um, and core concept of Hanukkah. I'm going to be just a tiny bit self-serving here and lift up the words of my colleague and classmate, Rabbi Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, on kolel.org, talking about making meaning of Hanukkah today. It's a social justice discussion of Hanukkah for each of the eight days. He says, the temple in Jerusalem that the Maccabees rededicated on Hanukkah was the Jewish institute, institution par excellence. 
It was the center of Jewish life in its time. For Judaism to function in the world, to bring meaning into our lives, to bring us closer to God, and to bring the world closer to God's vision of a world of peace and justice, requires Jewish institutions striving to make the prophetic vision a reality. Pick one Jewish institution that has made a difference in your life and help with your time or money or energy or ideas or creativity to rededicate that institution to the servants it was founded. Just a public service announcement on behalf of KI. <laughs> so what is the way that you can make a meaningful contribution to the work um, of, of this Jewish institution? That's what we're celebrating at Hanukkah, was having the Jewish institution get back up and running so that the mission of the Jewish people could be taken forward the next step. Now we understand our mission is to a world beyond ourselves, beyond, right, the land of Israel. Thank God. Um, we still need Jewish institutions in order for the Jewish ideals and the prophetic vision written in our texts, the, the vision that hopefully continues to guide us in some way about justice and equity and compassion and transformation and healing and possibility. Um, we have to have some faith and trust and hope and possibility if we're going to get through climate change. So, and those kinds of huge issues. So, um, yeah, it speaks for itself. All right, 12. The Sfatimet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, the Alter Rebbe. Especially at this season when lights were miraculously lit for Israel, even though they did not have enough oil, there remains light even now to help us with the aid of these Hanukkah candles to find that hidden light within. The Hanukkah candles are a spiritual symbol, the light of the commandments by which we search out our inner selves. We seek out the hidden divine light within ourselves. The mitzvot are light-seeking candles, instruments given to us to aid us in that search. So what is that for you? I mean, for the Sfatimet, you know, who was uh, a Hasidic Rebbe, like he was very clear about, well, they argued a lot about what it was, but <laughs> as all generations of Jews have. But for us, it's a little harder. We don't look at some text or go to some Rebbe and say, okay, what's the practice we're supposed to do? What are the mitzvot exactly that should be meaningful or important? Um, and so we think somehow we're off the hook. What I love about about teachers like this Fatimet is they're like, mm-mm, <laughs> you don't have to keep kosher. It doesn't let you off the hook. You don't have to like kashrut. Don't do it then. Fine. What are the mitzvot that are the ones that if you don't do them, you are not helping fuel the inner light? You're not connecting to the divine light within that then allows you to shine it out. The Svaramet always calls me back into Jewish accountability for what are the ways I can honestly, legitimately find that are actually obligations that I feel are obligations that make me able to connect with the divine light within because that's what Hanukkah reminds us. The light is in here and the mitzvah does not get more obvious, he's saying, than this one. Right? It's no more on the nose anywhere than here that all of the mitzvot he's saying, not just this one, Hanukkah reminds us that all of the mitzvot are there. Like 
This big thing up here on the wall, we have it burning in every synagogue because coming together in this space, coming together in this space, yes, I'm looking at the screen, y'all, coming together like this is a mitzvah. It is an obligation because that is something that connects us to the light in each of us. And then it just grows when we're doing that together. That's what the menorah is. It starts really little. And then it grows and grows and grows and grows. That's the symbol, says the Sfatimah. The Alter Rebbe says that's the symbol that every religious obligation, moral obligation, ethical obligation that we fulfill does for us. It brings us back to connection to that light within, the divine within, and that only spreads. Anyone who lights a flame off the core flame, it doesn't diminish the core flame at all. And I feel too often we as progressive Jews feel like we're off the hook somehow. That obligation isn't a word that speaks to us. The older I get, like, the more I'm like, we've really missed something by not talking about obligation. And I'm just very aware of that, raising an 18-year-old right now who really wants everything to be like on her time and her way, and I get it. I do, I do, I get it. I have such rahmanis for her. And I also feel like, and we have obligations. And you have obligations, because you matter. Dana Fine was her second grade teacher. She said, you have obligations to your friends and to this classroom, because you matter. If you don't have obligations, you're not really very important, are you? If you have any obligations, who cares what you do? And I think as progressive Jews, we've seen obligation is too much of an oppressive word, and we're such American, like, I'm an individual, I get to choose for myself, that we've, like, lost some idea that we matter, we're important. What we do, as a rabbi around here used to say, and still says, what we do matters, what we say matters, who we are matters. That is what the Hanukkah is reminding us, says Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger. So I would say this year as we light the menorah, may we be open a little bit to what's the call right now? What's the obligation right now that we have to each other, to the Jewish people, to, to the world, to our own values and ethics and morals and history? Like, What are some of the obligations that if we lived into them, meaning studying, celebrating, singing, I'm trying to do more of that as I explore my own obligations. I'm trying to study a little more. I'm trying to be exposed to a little more Jewish music that's going on right now because it fills me and it inspires me. I'm trying to make that an obligation. Do you know what I mean? When I wait so there'll be time for it, guess what? There's never time for it. If I make it an obligation because it will connect me to the light here that makes me then lighter to everybody else, and everyone knows that is a good thing. If I lighten up, it's a very good thing for everybody involved. But that's my obligation. And so I just would ask that we take the words of the Sfatimet seriously this year, that we use a Hanukkah as a symbol of the ways that we uh, want to and can figure out uh, living into obligations of connecting to the divine within. The Jewish way, living the holidays by Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, he says, pessimists and assimilationists have more than once informed the Jew that there is no more oil left to burn. Y'all have used it all up. As long as Hanukkah is studied and remembered, Jews will not surrender to the night. The proper response, as Hanukkah teaches, is not to curse the darkness, 
but to light a candle. Really important teaching um, for our time. All right, so we're almost done. Candle lighting is in 15 minutes. Look how closely we're just going to make it. Huh? Yay, that's the right answer. <laughs> it's almost candle lighting. She's like, what? Time just flew. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm starting with Hartman. This is the writing of David Hartman, A Blessed Memory. Uh, for, uh, he has a piece called Trusting in a New Beginning, Lighting the Surviving Crews of Oil, and I kind of extracted from that. Number one, Jews throughout history loved to retell the story of the tiny crews of oil, which refused to burn out. In recounting this tale, they indicated their deep hope that the small community of Israel could survive and generate light, irrespective of its size and power. Israel's fervent commitment to and trust in its way of life were sufficient reasons to retain hope in the community's future, regardless of the empirical conditions of history. He's talking now about the modern state of Israel, but of course he's talking about the Hanukkah story, right? That, you know, that it is that regardless of the empirical conditions of history, Jewish hope for self-preservation was enough. Then, and again, and I would say for them living in Israel, obviously it's about Israel. Um, he's an American Jew who made Aliyah. Um, but for those of us living in America, I think this message is just as powerful and just as poignant, right? That, you know, we're small. And some people will say getting smaller. Um, do we believe it's enough to continue to be a vibrant people that has something to say to our own uh, American community or, or and the world community? Um, he says, our fervent commitment to and trust in our way of life has to be sufficient reason to retain hope in the community's future. And I believe right now that is a core mitzvah for us and a core mitzvah for me, for sure, that guides my entire life is this, is we have to retain right the hope in our community's future regardless of the empirical conditions of history, and that is a mitzvah, that is a commandment, because otherwise we know what happens. Number two, the miracle of Jewish, and by the way, that's not easy. That's not easy. I, I, I work on it harder than I work on anything else, is retaining that hope. Truly. There are days I feel like I'm moving deck, tears, deck chairs on the Titanic. So um, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying, for me, it is the core mitzvah of my Number two. The miracle of Jewish spiritual survival throughout its history of wandering and oppression may best be described by our people's strength to live without guarantees of success and to focus on how to begin a process without knowledge of how it would end. Post this on your uh, wall by your bed, Lori Krauss, tonight. Hanukkah lights encourage one to trust human beginnings and to focus one's passions and efforts on whatever opportunities are available at the present moment. One ought to pour infinite yearnings into even small vessels. The strength to continue and persevere grows by virtue of the courage to initiate a process by lighting the first flame. Only lamps which are lit may continue to burn beyond their anticipated lifespan. I just got chill bumps. That, because come on, if that isn't the core flipping message, it's about lighting the first flame. 
only lamps which are lit may continue to burn beyond their anticipated lifespan. We don't know the lifespan. We don't know the outcome. We don't know it's going to be okay. We don't know that. That's Jewish, (laughs) says Rabbi Hartman. That's Jewish. That's what we do. Paradigmatic. That's what we do. We're going to light this one with no trust that we're going to have another one to light. Or this is going to be okay. Number three, the eight days of Hanukkah incorporate the miracle of the first day. Remember, this goes back to the argument. Why is it eight days? It should really only be seven days of America. The eight days of Hanukkah incorporate the miracle of the first day, which signifies the miracle of human courage to begin to build within imperfect human situations. Those who went ahead and kindled the lamp ignored the voices of reason, and they availed themselves of the precious opportunities at hand. That, for me, is like really a core I feel like focus of my next however many years here at KI, out in the world, personally, interpersonally, to really try to focus on what are the opportunities at hand. Yeah, we don't know it's going to be okay. We don't know that. We we are not assured of that. Nowhere. We're not a people who says, don't worry, it's going to be okay. That's not Jewish, right? It's you, you start anyway, and you take advantage of, what the opportunity is right now in the ways that you can do it, that you can contribute, that you can strike a match, that you are a wick, that you have practices that can magnify and grow your own light because the divine light is always there to spread. What are are the opportunities right now to act in such a way that we can at least for, for literally tomorrow ensure there's a Jewish community functioning, thriving, doing what only it can do. I was aware of this at the Interfaith Thanksgiving service. Yeah, I offered one kavanah and one song. Okay. But you know how many people in the audience had tears and just nodded? Like, were like, they, they just, just to be in a place where other voices different than their own were heard outside their echo chamber. I love that too. I love that when I'm inspired by another tradition, another teacher, something outside of our, we we all owe it to the world that we make sure the Jewish voice is being heard. What, What are the opportunities right now? Says Rabbi Hartman. That's what Hanukkah is about. Leaning into the opportunity of the moment when we are in a very deeply flawed set of human and historical circumstances. That's where we've always been, he says. <laughs> we have not come out of paradise into this. <laughs> like, we have always come out of oppression and marginalization and danger and death and suffering and afraid we're going to disappear. For the people who cared about our survival, afraid we were going to disappear. This is no different. So what are the opportunities of right now? All right, and we will close uh, with this text. Uh, from Zalman Chapter Shalomi of Blessed Memory. Text number 15. While everything is God and in God, and the whole cosmos is not separate from God, the point that a temple makes is that there is a consecrated, stronger focus of the quality of divinity for those who enter there. So while it is true that God is in everything, 
and everything broadcasts its own quality, a temple could be understood as a kind of broadcasting tower from which a signal goes out to the world. The carrier wave is a field of blessing, and the message stream is the way in which God would like to see the world be in harmony in order to receive that blessing. There would also be a certain kind of beacon in the broadcast, giving meaning to life and beaming the sense of justice and compassion for the world. In each human being, there is a receiver for that broadcast because divine compassion broadcasts on human wavelengths. People who are open to God and want to be open to receive that beacon can in this way recalibrate their moral and ethical life. Although the first and second temples were destroyed, the teaching is that the third temple is already present on a higher and more subtly vibratory scale. The broadcast comes even now from that temple, is received by some people, and alas, not by others. The beacon to us as human beings also invites us to contribute to that broadcast. In the way in which we invest energy, we boost the signal strength in public worship and in private prayer, in meditation, and then acts of justice and compassion. We beam these back to the source of the broadcast. So this Hanukkah, let us know that uh, we sit here in the tower we sit here in the broadcasting tower of KI. That's what this is, says um, Rabbi Salman Shachter Shalomi. Uh, and that um, we participate uh, by listening to this broadcast. And like I think it's never been more uh, an important a text uh, for you to hear, those of you watching and listening on Zoom. All right, he's saying, this is the broadcasting station. And now it is quite literally so, the broadcasting station, so that you're all listening and receiving the signal. And he said, our work is to really prepare ourselves and our community to be able to hear that signal, to take it in, and then respond to what it's telling us with our own acts of meditation and song and prayer and communal activity and quiet acts of justice and compassion and righteousness and goodness. And that's beaming the signal back. And in that way, it stays something uh, that, that is a flow of signaling that truly changes what happens in the world that is ready to receive it. That's us. That's us. That's what Hanukkah uh, ultimately uh, is about, is what I hear him saying, and that's why it's in this about Hanukkah. He's talking about Hanukkah. So he's talking about what does the temple really mean to us? And what he's saying is because there's another temple, and it's this. It's this business we're doing. This is the third temple. He's not someone who wanted for the third temple to come back into being, and then, 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 then once again, well, blah, blah, blah. So he's saying, he's saying this is the time of the third temple if we listen to the broadcast. But if you hit end, leave meeting, guess what? You don't hear it. If you don't come here, you can't be together to amplify it. That's our job, is to take in the signal and to um, beam back to the source of that signal um, through all the ways that we respond to it.